There we go. Now you can actually hear me. Good morning. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. It's so good to see you at Fellowship. Welcome to all of those who are joining us online. Wanted to let you know, for those that are here, there is communion placed around the sanctuary. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's an awesome opportunity to remember the price that was paid for you and me. Um, would you stand with me? I'd like to read a scripture to you this morning. It's from Psalm 91. And the psalmist writes, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence, and He shall cover you with His feathers. And under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again this morning for the awesome privilege you give us to gather together to have your word, to read your word, to study your word, Lord, and to be able to share with one another, to encourage one another. Lord, help us to leave behind the distractions of this world, the things that we're considering that are coming up this week, that we would focus completely on you and that our hearts would be prepared to receive what you have for us in your word. Father, we want to give you honor and glory in all the things we say and do. And we ask this in Jesus' most holy and precious name. And all of God's people who agree say, Amen. God bless you guys. Turn around and meet somebody, and we're going to start into worship. I see hope coming on the horizon. There's no need for hiding. Cause I belong. Well, here I am in the presence of the great I am. Near to your heart, oh God. Well, I have found my joy. I have searched so long. Darkness, I've walked so far, fighting, but I'm holding on. When your love draws near, hallelujah, where I belong here. In your presence, safe and secure, and I see hope coming on the Oh, coming on the 
morning we want to come before you just thanking you lord for your faithfulness in our lives god we thank you for the hope the joy the peace that we have from you god i pray this morning lord as we worship your name as we learn more about you i pray that you would instill in us a passion for your name god light of fire in us, Lord, that cannot be extinguished by this world, even though this world is crazy, Lord. We know that your ways are perfect. Your will will be accomplished in our lives. I pray that you continue to guide us and lead us, Lord, on our journey with you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace this morning, Lord, that has poured out upon us, that has set us free, God. May we hang on to that hope we have in you, Father, in your name. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever Great is our faithfulness, great is our faithfulness, morning by morning, through mercies I see. Summer and winter, the springtime and harvest, the sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. 
join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love. And great is thy faithfulness, great is thy All I have needed, thy hands have provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And all I have needed, thy hands have provided. Great is thy Lord unto me, and great is our faithfulness, Lord unto me. Amen. Well, let's continue in our attitude of worship as we welcome our friend Laura Landon.
just wanted to choose two songs that would give you guys encouragement and remind you of God's love, his unconditional love. He can't love you any more and he can't love you any less than he does right now in this moment. And nothing not even yourself can separate you from his great love. When no one wants to know you, wants to claim you, or look deep in your eyes. When those you love give you up, hurt you so bad, you can't stand to fight. Well, I've known that darkest hour that's where I found true love Jesus lifted me from the dead of night and he'll never give me up I'm his beloved and he's mine nothing can separate space, no time, and no death, no life, no person, no power, so strong is the love of my heavenly Father, I'm His beloved, there are days when I look away from but he's always there waiting. There are times I look in his eyes with tears filling mine, and he reaches to hold me. Through the constant pounding on my door, from this age and its deceit, I will Thank you. 
Thank you, Laura. God bless you. Let's have another round of applause. Isn't she wonderful? Junior high, high school kids, you can go ahead and meet your uh, teachers out in the foyer. Parents, uh, they'll be back in the foyer after the service and after Sunday school. Also, Again, there are offering boxes around the sanctuary and out in the foyer, too, if you'd like to be a part of supporting this ministry. And I'd like to ask Chris to come up right now and uh, lead us in prayer this morning. Thank you, Pastor. Let's bow our heads. Father, we love you. It's a joy to be here. And Lord, you've told us to be lights in the world. And how do we do that? We do it with love. A kind word, uh, a smile. And in order to receive love, Lord, it's, we gotta give it as well. And so we pray that you'd help us all to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Emma. We have a special treat for you this morning. Some of you know that uh, Pastor Ed and Pastor Greg are not here this morning, but uh, you're going to enjoy this morning. Um, Many of you know the pastor. He's been on staff here for years. He and his family grew up in this area. Would you please welcome Pastor Aaron Hale? Thanks, Bob. Bless you. Pastor Bob. I've known Pastor Bob since I was 15. Long, long time ago. 32 years ago. Wow, that's, that's a lot of years. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning. Always a, a blessing and a privilege and an honor. Pastor Ed reached out to me a few weeks back and asked if I could come and, and stand in. I'm, I'm always glad to do that. It's great to... Um, It's great to come and and be here. Now, I know, at least I believe, I still haven't had this confirmed, but I did look at the website, and it looked like uh, you'd been in Luke and Acts on Sunday mornings. I hope it's okay, but I'm going to take us back to the Old Testament 
for this morning's message. And we're actually looking at the book of 1 Samuel. If you brought your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel. We're looking at chapter 2. And, and what's happening historically in the nation of Israel is there's this transition from the time of, of God's people being led by judges to now, now it's coming to be the time of the kings. In fact, Samuel himself, God raises up, as we'll see, and uses as a prophet and a priest, and, and he identifies Israel's first king, who is, of course, Saul. And Saul is then followed by David. And, and much of the books of First and Second Samuel, they focus on David's leadership over the nation and uh, so much of his story and what God did in and through him, his uh, failures, but also faithfulness, and uh, it's definitely a story of um, of God's mercy there. But what we find at the beginning of the book of First Samuel is the continuation of the season of darkness that you see in Judges. I don't know how long it's been since you've been in the book of Judges, but uh, that's that's a little bit of a depressing book. If you're uh, if you're looking to kind of you know go you know have a downer you know go go read Judges. But anyway, no, there's there's hope there too. But but the, Israel they follow this pattern in Judges where they depart from the Lord and they drift further and further, and then God raises up a judge. And they, it's kind of, you know, two steps forward, three back. It's just a messy, dark time. And Samuel opens up with much of the same darkness. We're, we're introduced to Eli, who is the high priest. And he's a relatively good man. But his two sons were, were exceedingly wicked. They were evil men. And to that wickedness, God must respond but as we'll see, he never brings judgment without offering mercy. And that mercy, it's going to come in the form of a person, a prophet, Samuel by name. Through, or rather, excuse me, though beyond this child who's going to grow to shape Israel's future, today's verses, they look further ahead to the Messiah himself. In many ways, Samuel, he pictures and he embodies God's working among his people through a person, and of course, that greatest working would be through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, we're looking at the second half of 1 Samuel 2, verses 22 through 36, and our message this morning is titled, Judgment and Mercy. <laughs> As we left last night, I taught the evening, the Saturday evening service as well, and my wife said, you know, judgment, that's kind of a heavy message to bring, and, and I said, well, Pastor Ed said that, you know, the people, they needed some judgment, and so, no, I'm just kidding, he did not tell me that. It isn't just judgment, it's also mercy, and hopefully we'll understand and receive the balance of the two, but to set this tone, the tone for our study, I want to take a moment and explain what we mean by these terms as they relate to God and his character, judgment, and mercy. Now, while some in the church, as well as in popular culture, they would prefer to define God as being only and exclusively love, and he certainly is love. Scripture tells us that God is love. The Bible also reveals his character to be far more nuanced and balanced in terms of the inclusion of all of his attributes. God is also holy, he's righteous, and he's just. And sometimes we can neglect the reality of the certainty of God's judgment. In fact, Scripture tells us that, that 
God's justice and his judgment, it always begins with those who claim to be his. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, we read, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? The author of Hebrews continues this thought in speaking of those who reject the witness of the law of God and salvation through Christ's death on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, we read, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, it's important here to define the difference between judgment and, and discipline. The one being God's righteous punishment against lawbreakers, that's judgment. And the other, discipline, is his loving correction of his children. And depending where you are this morning and where you find yourself in relationship to God, uh, you'll experience one of the two through disobedience. Judgment, if you don't know him, discipline, if you do. It's important to understand the difference. But nonetheless, God holds his people to a higher standard. Now, does this mean that we're to live in fear of, of, of God as he's hanging over the banisters of heaven, we might say, ready to, to uh, lob lightning bolts at us like some sort of a, a, a Zeus depiction of God? Well, yes and no. We should have a holy and a reverential respect and awe for God who will judge. But how does God deal with the penitent, with the humble? Because you might be here this morning going, well, okay, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I, I have sinned, but I repented. So, you know, I'm not going to be judged, right? Right. In fact, for those who wisely and rightly receive God's mercy... Apart from the New Testament, which speaks extensively to how God deals with his people, Psalm 103, I think, captures and pictures this for us really well. Beginning in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Think, think about Jesus' approach to people that we see so clearly in the Gospels. As, as one evangelist pointed out, his approach was, was uh, for the most part, law to the proud, but grace to the humble, that's how Jesus operated and worked with people. To the self-righteous Pharisee who refused to see their need for a savior, Jesus was harsh, proclaiming judgment. Woe unto you. Yet to the woman caught in the act of adultery, but desperate and broken over her sin, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Our God wants to be merciful. He desires to extend mercy. That is his preference, but we have to be willing to receive it. We have to position ourselves in relation to him such that he can extend his mercy 
to us. And today's verses record for us a, a scenario, I think, where we're able to see these two aspects of who our God is interacting with each other. And I, and I think it serves as a warning for you and I, a caution and an exhortation that we would be not under his judgment and or discipline, but under his mercy. And so it's also an encouragement the priesthood was in disarray, as I mentioned before. Uh, these, those who were tasked with leading God's people in his word and worship were instead taking advantage of them, using them for their own needs. And as we'll see, Eli, the high priest, has failed to confront this sin in his family in the form of his two sons who were serving as priests and abusing that office. Eli, in fact, he's guilty of neglect, Neglect can cost ourselves and others deeply, can't it? That is when we neglect the voice and the working of God's Holy Spirit in our lives by his word. When, when we hear him speak, but we ignore, we resist, or we delay the right response. It can lead to grave consequences, judgment in the case of Eli's family, as we'll see. Uh, uh, Robert Wentz speaks to this in a story that he shares. He writes, we often fail to consider the gradual cumulative effect of sin in our lives. In St. Louis in, in 1984, an unemployed cleaning woman noticed a few bees buzzing around the attic of her home. Well, since there were only a few, she made no effort to deal with them. But over the summer, the bees continued to fly in and out of the attic while the woman remained unconcerned and unaware of the growing colony of bees just a couple floors above her head. Well, the whole attic became a hive, and the ceiling of the second-floor bedroom finally caved in under the weight of the hundreds of pounds of honey and thousands of angry bees, and tragically, she was killed in that. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't die. That's not how the story ends. While the woman escaped serious injury, I'm sorry for doing that. That's in case you didn't have coffee before you came in this morning. No extra charge. Now you're, you had the image of the woman, you know, dead under, never, anyway. She did escape serious injury, but she was unable to repair the damage of her accumulated neglect. So as we move into today's message, let's ask the Spirit of God to reveal to us, to you and I, those areas where we may be guilty of neglect. Neglecting those things that God has been convicting us of. Areas where we need to take action, but we failed to. Instead, perhaps, nursing sin and rebellion in our hearts. Setting ourselves up for either discipline or judgment. Because in actuality, what God wants to extend to you and I today is mercy. Let's pray and we'll look at the first few verses this morning. Father, as we open your word, God, as, as we read... Scripture, we pray that, God, you, by your Holy Spirit, would, would wield the sword of the Spirit like the great physician that you are, and that, God, you would expose those areas in our lives, Father, where we need to close the distance, the gap between you and ourselves, where we need to respond and say yes to you, maybe in a place where we've been saying no, maybe where we've allowed our hearts to grow callous, Lord, where, where we have been neglecting your work. 
and, and, and choosing to walk in our own ways. God, would you bring us into the light this morning? We pray that you would move and speak here by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning, we're looking at verses 22 through 25, and, and we're, we're entitling this darkness and dereliction, verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. And then in verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now, earlier in chapter 2, we learned that Eli's sons were guilty of taking whatever they wanted from the people's sacrifice. You see, if you've studied the law, you know that in the system of worship at the tabernacle and later the temple, as the people brought animals to offer in sacrifice for their sins, God had been very specific about those portions that were to be wholly consumed and offered up to him as opposed to those parts that the priests could take for their own sustenance, <clears throat> excuse me, and the own, their own needs of their family. Well, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, so wicked and, and selfish and, and so out of step with God's heart and his truth that they took whatever they wanted. In fact, they went so far as to threaten the people and say, you'll give us the best parts of the offering, and if you don't, we'll take it by force. In fact, Samuel records that therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. People hated to come to worship because of the sin of Eli and, and, and Hophnius. Now imagine, Pastor Bob, he was out here earlier during announcements, and he said if you're, if you're interested in, in giving, you want to uh, invest in this work, there's the, you know, the offering boxes and things. You know, imagine if he went into a full shakedown on you guys, okay? And I, I've joked about in first service, I heard of a church one time where, where they took up the first offering, and then worship continued, and the ushers went in the back and, and counted. And, and they brought the number up to the pastor, and he had the ushers stand and block the doors, and he said, no, no, we got to do this again. We're, you, you all have to dig deeper until we get to the number we need. Now, that has never happened here. I don't, maybe, we, you know what, actually, yeshers, if you, no, we're just kidding. We're not going to do that. But that's what was happening. The people were being taken advantage of far worse than that and abused to the extent where they, where they resented and they hated worshiping God. And as you can imagine, this grieved the heart of God. Verse 12 says, they were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. They had no relationship with him. Verse 22 tells us at this point that Eli, he's very old. And word has reached him that not only were his sons taking advantage of the people in that way, but they were engaging in sexual immorality with those women who helped to serve at the tabernacle. We don't know a lot about these uh, female volunteers. Exodus 38.8 references them, but likely they helped to watch the children of those serving and worshiping and took care of other jobs and tasks related to worship. They were there 
to serve God. And Eli and Hophnius used them as well. They brought this wickedness and sin and darkness over the very place where God had purposed to meet with his people. That place where, where sin would be resolved, they were engendering and creating more. It was horrible. Eli is grieved as his sons have brought the tabernacle of worship into a place where it more resembled a pagan temple. Verse 23 tells us his response. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. Eli, he confronts his sons, but nothing more. He's upset. But resolve is lacking. He, he is derelict in his duties as high priest and father to these two men. And it gives us at least some insight into the way that he parented these two sons. And why they had turned out the way that they had, at least in part. He was lax, he was unwilling to discipline, empty warnings and hand wringing had done nothing to correct these two well, Eli, he acknowledges the seriousness of their sin, but not to the extent that he's compelled to take action and to bring correction. And it's how important it is for parents that we not only tell children the right and point out the wrong, but follow up with meaningful discipline. Now, we're not going to go into detail in that, but of course, Scripture speaks explicitly and extensively to our calling as parents to raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But rather than demand change or justice or call on the people to drive these two out, Eli laments in verse 25, if one sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Interestingly enough, God worked through Eli's weakness, judgment was accumulating against his sons, and they'd crossed a line that God would severely correct. And in this case, there would be none to advocate for them. These who had had the opportunity to repent for years had forsaken the path of mercy in favor of the self-life, indulgence, and iniquity. And for that, they would be judged. What had been pleasurable for a season, as is so often the case with our sin would cost them far more than they ever intended. It reminds me of those words spoken years ago. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you far more than you ever intended to pay. That's the cost of our accumulated neglect, resisting the voice of God's Spirit when he mercifully is seeking to lead us out and away from our rebellion and back into that place of being under his mercy. We need to take care that we are not neglecting some area where God is trying to free us. Least the cost of our disobedience bring judgment into our lives and pain into the lives of those that we love. Now, miraculously, despite this evil rebellion and sin, God was preserving a remnant, a means of deliverance, a voice of reason and hope, a prophet, and he always does that. And so we come to verses 26 through 30 in our second 
point heartache and hope. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. You see what's amazing about this second half of 1 Samuel chapter 2 and our digesting of all the darkness and the evil that was rampant in Israel and especially in the tabernacle and in the priesthood itself was at that very moment God was raising up a deliverer. God was raising up someone who would be the standard bearer of truth in the nation, in the midst of this horrible darkness that seemingly has overtaken the kingdom of God, we find light. This child is that one born of Hannah. And if you've not read the first chapter in Samuel, you, that's your homework. You can go home this afternoon and read that and, and find the beautiful story of how God was working in and through uh, both she and her husband Elkanah's lives. They were barren. They couldn't have any children. And she, she prayed and asked God to give her a son and, and said that if he, if he would lend her a son, that she would lend him back to the Lord, dedicating him in service with the priests. And so God did. And this is where mercy comes in. God's provision in preparation of this young man who will be to Israel a voice of hope and clarity, a word of wisdom to her rulers and a light to the way in which, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a light to the way in which God was calling them. <coughs> Pardon me. I don't usually lose my voice while I'm teaching and now it's back. There you go. Something that I think is important to notice here. is that this dark season out of which God is delivering Israel, it, it parallels in many ways, I think. It, it captures the same spirit and what was happening at a time in Elijah's life. Maybe you remember back in 1 Kings chapter 19. In that case, actually, a, a time of darkness and despair, it followed a great victory where Elijah had defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, but now Jezebel was pursuing him. And Elijah was effectively just undone, felt hopeless, was despairing of his very life. In fact, he looked to the Lord, much like people may have at this time in, in 1 Samuel, and thought, how is God going to get us out of this? This is place of, of darkness. There's just no hope. There's no way forward. Elijah felt that way. Maybe you've encountered those in today's world and, and culture. I was having a conversation with, uh, with someone not long ago in the church, and they were making that comment, well, I, I just think, you know, everything's going you-know-where and a you-know-what, and, and God's just going to come and judge it all. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. Has he been consulting with you about when he's going? I know judgment is coming at the end. I've read the end of the book. You probably have, too. But he gets to decide when that's going to happen. And as far as I can tell, his preference is mercy. You see, we find that, that God in Scripture, he, he tells us that he has no delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure in that. In fact, he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we need to be careful when we're taken with uh, an over-preoccupation with darkness in the culture. We need to remember, oh, that's right. You and I are called to be a city set on a hill. We're called to be the light in the darkness. And, and, and light shines all the brighter, the darker the conditions are 
around us. Well, Elijah was pretty discouraged in 1 Kings chapter 19, knowing his life was hanging in the balance. The evil queen was coming after him. And he essentially came to God and said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. This, this Jezebel, she's coming after me. I'm your only faithful servant. Nobody else is serving you. Uh, your whole kingdom thing down here, that program, it's kind of hanging on an edge. I don't really know what you're going to do. I think you should probably hang it up because, uh, by the way, this is my letter of resignation. Sorry, God, you're planned. And, and, and the Lord just kind of goes, okay, Elijah. He says, Elijah tells him, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the Lord. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Do you ever feel that way? I alone am left. I'm the only one, Lord. God, of course, his word of encouragement and, and exhortation to Elijah was, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that is not kissed him. You see, God always has a remnant. He's always working. He always has a plan for how he wants to intercede in this world. Because I mentioned, as I mentioned before, least we forget, he so loved the world. Even this world, currently, 2024, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish and have everlasting life. Until he says it's over, he's not done extending mercy. And he's not done working in and through his people and by his Holy Spirit in this world. We find here in 1 Samuel that despite the terrible wickedness that had overtaken the priesthood and was harming the nation, that God has set about doing the unexpected in raising up Samuel. In the heartache, God is always bringing hope. He is ever working this way among his people and in the world. And we need to remember that when we're inclined ourselves to give in to hopelessness, to think that things are beyond restoration, that God is done. Now, certainly he does reach that point. At times, he did with Eli's sons, but not with his people we read the child grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And you know what? You can't help but back up from this and go, how is that possible? Because remember, Samuel's growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. That happened in the context of the tabernacle with Eli, who at least in part failed as a father to his own sons, but now served as a father figure to Samuel. And Eli and Hophni as these exceedingly wicked men. They're there in the mix too. That's the environment in which God raised up the one that would be a light. God can do that. I talk to people sometimes, and oh, I don't want to have kids in this world. It's so, you know, dark and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why not? Who else is going to reach the next generation? We, we're all going to stop having kids, and, uh, you know, I guess we're all going to move to Idaho, and, uh, and, and we'll be up there, and then Jesus will just come and I'm sorry if you know people. We have lots of <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. All right. Strike that from the recording. <laughs> God's called us to a mission field especially right here. Don't miss it. Don't miss the opportunity and the calling, whether it's raising up your children, your grandchildren, whether it's serving in the children's ministry, being a light to the kids in your classroom, in your neighborhood. God wants to reach them, and he can. First, God is able. Secondly, I think it speaks good of Eli as well, because while Eli failed in some respects, 
I think he also did well as a father in ways that maybe we're not exposed to here in Scripture. Because least we forget, Eli and Hophnius, they had the law of God. They had the truth of God's word. They rejected it. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, and that means we have the capacity to resist God's working in our lives. And some of you may find yourself in a place where you think, I did everything I could, or maybe I didn't, and I ended up with uh, an Eli or, or a Hophnius. Well, remember, God is still able to raise up a Samuel in spite of us. Sometimes we do the best we can, and, and, and yet... The outcome is not what we were looking for. Sometimes we fail and God does more. I appreciate what a pastor friend of mine out in Orange County said in regards to parenting. He said, don't take too much blame and don't take too much credit. Maybe you need that encouragement in your life. Don't, don't take too much blame for what's happened in, in, in somebody's life and don't take too much credit. It's, it's the grace of God that uh, brings about good and can still turn someone's story that is still being told. It's not over yet. Keep praying. Samuel, he was well trained, no doubt, by Eli, but he also chose to grow in the way of the Lord. He chose to grab a hold of what God was doing in his life. And I think it's interesting that the description of, of Samuel and God's working in and through him, it, it parallels what we find actually in Luke's gospel in regards to Jesus. When uh, he and his family had gone when he was 12 years old to the temple. We read that Luke, Jesus, excuse me, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In favor with God and man. Much like Jesus, uh, Luke, excuse me, speaks here of Jesus. Samuel, he grew physically, spiritually, and socially. Now, before we move on, consider for a moment where God was raising up hope and light in Israel, it was through a child. Often we expect God to work through the older. And, and please understand, God does use older people. I'm not saying that he doesn't. We need their wisdom. We need their experience, their giftings. If you find yourself in an older generation, please make sure that you are invested in the work of God. But very often, and especially when a new work is in order and needed, God steps outside of the more orthodox and expected means, and he does a new work, usually through the young. It's, it's one of the important reasons we have to be careful about resisting change and, and things that are different. I'm not talking about changing the, the message itself. I'm talking about methods that might be different from what we're used to, because that's often change the very place through which God is going to do a new thing. Many talk about a desire to see God bring revival, but we tend to be fixated on the past and what and how God did it then. But I submit to you that the new thing that God will do is of necessity going to look different I like this section from the end of C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've read them. The Pevensey children, Edmund, Susan, Peter, and Lucy, they've returned from their adventures in Narnia and, and met their uncle, whom they find knows of that magical land. But upon wondering if they will return again through the wardrobe, as they had several times before, he replies, no. 
I don't think it will be any good trying to go back through the wardrobe to get the coats which they'd left there in Narnia. You won't get into Narnia again by that route. Yes, of course you will get back to Narnia again someday. Once a king of Narnia, always a king of Narnia. But don't go trying to use the same route twice. God, I think, is in the habit of looking for new wineskins. Jesus tells us that, doesn't he? Into which he may pour his Holy Spirit. If we're fixated on the past the way we've always done it, we just miss out on that work that he desires to do today. When Israel wasn't listening to God, he raised up a young voice, that of Jeremiah. When the nation was exiled to Babylon, he preserved Daniel and his three sons, uh, three young friends, excuse me, to be representatives of Israel and keepers of the truth. And when the world needed a savior, he sent his son as a baby born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Where God is wanting to do a new thing, he will very often work in a way different than what we are expecting. And sometimes, as was the case for Samuel, he'll raise up someone completely unexpected, off of our radar, someone quite possibly young. I don't think anyone in Israel right now, despairing of how corrupt the priesthood was, worried about the future and direction of the nation, none of them were thinking certainly that the answer was, was there at the tabernacle in the form of a small child. And yet that's exactly what God was doing. Where is God wanting to do a new thing in your life? How might you and I be guilty of resisting that change and renewal? Maybe ask him, God, would you by your Holy Spirit soften my heart in a fresh way to be open? Maybe it's serving in some new capacity or ministry, giving in some way, stepping out in faith where previously you, you, you've been unwilling. Well, back to the situation that was necessitating this fresh work of God. Though Eli's sons were the ones who'd committed these sins of transgressing the law, he, the high priest, had tolerated that, neglected his responsibility. Their sin had caused him heartache, but not enough to stir him to action. And so God will act. And we come now to a word directly from God to Eli and his apostate sons. Verse 27, then a man of God, that is a prophet, came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in, in Pharaoh's house? That is in calling the tribe of, of Eli, of which, uh, excuse me, the tribe of Levi, of which Eli was a part, through the house of Aaron to be priests. Verse 28, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
The prophet lays it all out for Eli. He, he re rehearses for him the great privilege given to the sons of Aaron as priests and, and the privilege and, and, and the blessing. And he says, Eli, for, for the sins of your son and for your neglect, it's all being taken away. Longevity will be removed from your, your household. In fact, uh, there will come a time when your descendants, they'll beg the priesthood for a morsel of sustenance because they'll no longer receive what they abused and treated with disdain. Verse 30, but now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. We sometimes imagine that the consequences of our sin will never catch up to us. But the Bible warns us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so part of the word of mercy to you and I this morning is that we would respond that we wouldn't neglect, that we wouldn't resist the voice of God's spirit, the clarity and the light of his word, that God intends to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we would correct our way, that we would respond, lest we find ourselves under his judgment or discipline. Now lastly, we'll finish up the chapter as we consider verses 31 through 36 and look at the details of this prophetic word and the punishment being directed toward the son's and the house of Eli, suffering and salvation is our final point. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your young men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. And one day they shall die, both of them. But verse 35, a word of mercy. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. This judgment is thorough. And, and God goes so far through the prophet as to tell Eli, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they will die in one day. And if you read ahead in 1 Samuel to chapter 4, we find that that finds its fulfillment and in fact Eli himself dies the same day this judgment is thorough it should help you and I to understand just how seriously God takes all of this those who would seek to represent him and then stumble his people use them are assured severe punishment suffering judgment but this word, it ends with the prophet speaking of a faithful priest yet to come, salvation and mercy. Eli's household would diminish, its strength would be cut off, service in the priestly line and longevity, both would be taken. But after this darkness of judgment, 
and suffering, mercy is spoken of. Again, verse 35, then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Now I think this promise that's given to Eli, which is a word of tremendous hope, it, it has a near and a far fulfillment, which is often true of prophecy. Maybe you're aware of that. It's a little bit like the San Bernardino Mountains right here. When you look out, it's easy to interpret them from a two-dimensional perspective. They look like they're right next to each other, but if you drive up to Big Bear, you find that the peaks are actually, in some cases, miles apart from each other. Well, when you read prophecy, either in the prophetic books or the very words of Jesus in the Gospels, sometimes it can seem as though those things that he's speaking of, that, that they happen in rapid succession, one after the other, when in reality, sometimes they could be separated by, by centuries and even eons. It's, it's speaking in totality of God's plan and the way he wants to work. And there's something of that here in verse 35, because in one sense... The prophet is telling Eli that though his household and priestly line will pass away, God's going to raise up a faithful priest and representative. And in some respects, that happened through the prophet Samuel. But then also we find that Eli's family would be replaced by Zadok under Solomon. But I think beyond that, there's something more here that's being spoken of. Because would either of those really walk before God's anointed forever, as verse 35 tells us, it seems to be looking past just a new priesthood. Who is, who is this prophet speaking of? Hebrews 7 makes clear that Jesus became that greater priest who would serve and does serve forever, bringing the mercy that we so desperately need where judgment was deserved Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read there, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So yes, God was bringing restoration and hope to Israel in that time and context. And, and Samuel would do that and the priesthood would be restored. But God was looking and, and causing Israel's gaze to look further ahead, much further to that greater high priest who brings to you and I hope of mercy today, such that if we're sitting here this morning, maybe struggling with condemnation, maybe thinking, okay, this is about all the judgment I can take on one Sunday morning, pastor. I need a little hope here. Well, let me tell you, that greater high priest gives us hope. That one that endures forever because he laid down his very life. He stood for you and I in that place of judgment the justice that we see so plainly meted out against these wicked priests, we don't have to endure that for our guilt and shame because Jesus already did on a cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. 
Whatever it is, and I do mean whatever it is that you're wrestling with right now, whether it's unconfessed sin, whether it's guilt or shame, neglect, something that you've resisted, uh, something from a long time ago that you've never dealt with, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse you from that sin. And God desires to extend to you not judgment, but mercy. But you have to come to the foot of a blood-stained cross to receive it, where there God's forgiveness flows. To a nation with corrupt leadership, a system of worship that had failed, God sent a deliverer, a voice of hope, mercy, in the form of the prophet Samuel. But this young priest looked ahead to God's ultimate answer to the judgment that we all deserve in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God's righteous judgment is a serious reality that we all need to face, but not one of us has to live in fear of. We can choose mercy. You can choose mercy today. Maybe, Robert, if you and the worship team can come out and join us in a moment, you can give us the opportunity to respond to the Lord in worship. But as we close, I'd like to share an illustration from a pastor and Bible commentator from several generations back, Henry Allen Ironside. He tells a story from the early days of expansion into the American West. He writes of pioneers who were making their way across one of the central states to a distant place that had been opened up for homesteading. Kind of a little house on the prairie imagery for us here. Well, they traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily slow. One day they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west stretching for miles across the prairie, and soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly across the horizon. They had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to return to it because the flames would be upon them. One man only seemed to have understanding as to what could be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. Then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back into it. As the flames roared on toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we shall not all be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here for we are standing where the fire has already been. You see, when God calls you and I out of our sin into his mercy, he's inviting us to the place where the fires of his judgment have already burned. That we would stand not in a place where we have to earn his favor, forgiveness, or mercy, but simply receive it as a gift because of the work that his son did in our place. Ironside goes on. He writes, what a picture of the believer who is safe in Christ. And then he quotes this hymn. On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. The fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on him. And all who are in Christ are safe forever, for they are now standing where the fire has been. And so as we close our time this morning, I, I would ask us, where are you standing today? In your own self-righteousness? 
in condemnation? Or are you standing in his mercy? It may be that today you're clinging to some neglect as we've spoken to in this message, ignoring an area where you know God has called you to repent, to come into the light, to walk in the light, as 1 John 1, 7 tells us, as he is in the light. To take some action. He's provided a way of escape. He's made a way for mercy that you might flee judgment. And, and come out from underneath his discipline to his place of favor and forgiveness. Cry out to him today. Fall at the foot of the cross where Christ's blood has been shed for you and I, that, that we might experience his mercy and his forgiveness. Would you please stand with me? We'll close our time in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the word of hope that we find, the good news, the gospel. On every page of the scriptures, we thank you, Lord, that in the darkest places of this world, God, you are bringing hope and, and life and light, and you have brought salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And as it concerns our lives, where it seems hopeless, it seems that there's no way forward or no way out. You reach down in your mercy and you call us to trust you and to grab hold of your hand and to stand where the fire has already burned. God, I pray that you would give us the faith and the conviction to step from where we are to where you are, that we might receive that forgiveness and mercy. And I, I want to just take a brief moment here at the end of the message. If you're in that place of decision or perhaps indecision that that you would respond to the lord and i'd like to pray for you if that's your desire this morning a fresh experience of mercy and forgiveness would you just raise your hand and i'll acknowledge it and pray for you yes yeah yes 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 father for those that would say god i need more mercy i need more grace Maybe there's a, a coming out of sin. Maybe there's amends that need to be made. God, a, a, a path of light that you're calling some to walk on away from the darkness. I pray that you'd bring a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit and, and equipping, God, that you who are at work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure, that you would move and give strength, God, that in our weakness your power would be made perfect. As our eyes are on you, Jesus, and on the cross, and as we trust in your salvation and forgiveness, Lord, may that truth liberate us to walk in mercy as we receive your grace and forgiveness. And I pray for the whole of us, God, that you would fill us afresh with your presence and with your power, that each of us would go out from this place into this day and into this week and into this new year, emissaries, ambassadors of your kingdom, that your mercy would flood out of our lives to those around us. Oh God, that you would do more than, than the limitations we put on you would right now see Father, we, we trust you. We want to walk nearer to you. We want to stand in your mercy. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the Lord in worship now. Just our voices, how great, and how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. And oh, we'll sing how great, how great is our God. Just a reminder, if you guys need prayer, we do have a prayer room over here. They would love to pray with you. For the rest of you guys, have a great Sunday, and we will see you next week.